Well, recently, I listened to a brief biographical sketch of Charles Simeon. I don't know, anybody heard of Charles Simeon in church history? His life and ministry. Charles Simeon pastored Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years at the turn of the 19th century, so late 1700s, early 1800s. That's over a half century of faithful devotion to proclaiming the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that church. And you need to know that these 54 years of ministry were not all that wonderful for Charles. Uh, They were actually quite difficult. There was about 10-year time, a 10-year time span, a decade of time when Charles Simeon preached to people standing only in the aisles of the church. This was a time when the well-to-do wealthy folk in the congregation actually owned their pews. They, they paid money and they, they bought them. And the more they paid, the farther up front their pew was. You know, think of those New England church pews. You can see around here sometimes they have a little box built around them with a door. And then the pews for the family are inside. And in protest to Charles Simeon, either because they didn't want to hear the gospel or because they just didn't want to hear Charles Simeon, they locked the pew doors. They locked the pew doors in protest. So all of the poorer folk who came to hear the gospel would have to stand in the aisleways. And he did this for a decade of his ministry. Ten of his 54 years, he preached to people standing only in the aisles. But before these 54 years of faithful service to the Lord, Simeon was faithfully devoted to himself. He was the son of a wealthy attorney. He was able to live a relatively extravagant lifestyle. He was able to afford whatever he wanted and whenever he wanted it. But his life was forever changed when he heard and responded to the gospel during Passion Week of his first year at King's College, Cambridge. Listen to his own words. This is how he describes his own conversion. What? May I transfer my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me? That I may lay my sins on his head? That God willing, I will not bear on my soul one moment longer? Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. I awoke early with those upon my heart, those those words, those thoughts upon my heart and my lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And from that hour in rich abundance, peace flowed into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior, What's happening here? What's happening in Simeon's life? What is he actually describing? Simeon is experiencing the generosity of God in the gospel. He came to know of a Savior who gave himself fully for him. And it radically changed his life. First, it changed his life vertically. Selfish Simeon gave himself wholeheartedly to the Lord. Remember, 54 years of faithful service? But it also changed his life horizontally. It changed how he related to his brothers and sisters. Prior to his conversion, selfish Simeon lived this extravagant lifestyle. After his conversion, Charles adopted a very simple lifestyle. 
And why did he do this? He wanted to be able to give more of his time, more of his resources, more of his income in ministry to the Lord. One biographer wrote of Simeon's father, who was not a Christian. This is what he wrote about the father. He so strongly disapproved of the way that Charles so freely disposed of his money to the poor that he left Charles' share of the parental estate in the hands of trustees. Lest he should ruin himself with his Christian generosity. Ruin himself with his Christian generosity. What is this Christian generosity? I think one way to look at Christian generosity is that it's obeying the two great commandments given by Christ. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Wholehearted devotion to God, unwavering commitment to one another. With that definition in mind, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1 as we ask God to revive our hearts in generosity and to revive our good work of giving. First, as you turn there, just a, just a little context. At the end of 1 Corinthians, the Paul's first letter, Paul asked the church to begin setting aside money to send to help their brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem had fallen on hard financial times, and for a couple of reasons at least. One, sustained or repeated famines in the area of Judea. And two, persecution by the Jews. And the Corinthians were eager and excited to give. But a year has gone by now, as we enter 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and, and no progress has actually been made in taking up the collection for the relief of the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul literally is writing to the church to revive their generosity and to revive their giving. Let me read, the, let me read 1 chapter 8. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this... Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had started, uh, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
For I do not mean that others should be eased by your burden, by you, your burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack, no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnestness care that I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him are sending the brothers who are famous among you, all the churches, for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at this honorable, what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Well, let me walk through that just a little bit this morning. Paul is in the province of Macedonia, portion of Greece, as he writes. And he sets forth before the Corinthians an example of the Macedonian churches, the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And he, and he gives this commendation to them. Listen to the commendation again. We want you to know, brothers, in Corinth, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The churches in Macedonia are in the midst of difficult times themselves. They, they may not be any richer than the church in Jerusalem. Mostly this is due to persecution. And Paul says, let me tell you about the grace of God at work in the churches of Macedonia. Would you like a little report of what God's doing among your brothers and sisters in Macedonia? You know, even though they are in extreme poverty themselves, something that you in Corinth are not experiencing, but they are, I personally watch them. I give testimony. Paul's giving his legal testimony. I personally watch them give all that they possibly could. And then I watch them give more. They are rich in generosity. I mean, think about this equation that Paul's laid out for us here. Here's the equation. Overflowing joy in Christ and his gospel and the grace of God in their lives, plus extreme poverty, no money, yields rich generosity. How does that work? That math just doesn't compute in dollar terms. They have this overflowing joy in the midst of extreme trials and poverty, which actually yields rich generosity. Well, it's a grace equation. It's the grace of God. Generosity is not a pure dollar amount. It's a heart factor. It's a grace factor. And they did this, the Macedonians, on their own. 
They weren't coerced. They weren't commanded. No one made them do this. It was their own genuine response to the generosity of God. To the generosity of God and His grace that Paul's been talking about. And also, they were... They responded and were were encouraged to participate because of the example of the Corinthian church's generosity. Wait, what? We have to figure out what that is. How how did the Corinthian church uh, serve as an example to them? Well, look ahead just a little bit. Peek ahead just a little bit to chapter 9, verse 1. Paul lets the cat out of the bag here. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. I don't really need to tell you about the offering. You already know. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. So Corinth is down in Achaia. Let me, let me explain this. So, so Paul and his, and, his, and his cohorts, his co-workers are in, uh, are in Corinth. They tell them about the need to take up an offering for the saints back in Jerusalem. And so then when they leave Corinth and they go up into Macedonia, into those churches, they tell them. One, about the need for the offering to be taken up for the saints in Jerusalem and for how the Corinthians responded to the opportunity to do that. You see, because the Corinthians responded with great zeal and readiness. They were like, yeah, we're going to give. And so Paul went up to Thessalonica and Berea and the like and said, hey, the Corinthians are way on board. You should see their zeal to give. It's amazing. And so... That's what's kind of spurred them on. Their love for the gospel and the opportunity to give to help their brothers and sisters. And and let's not get confused here. So this is a benevolence offering, right? There are people in need. The church has a need. That need is down in in Judea. But it's, it's also just a church need. Principally, it's a church need. It happens to be benevolence. But but we could put the entire budget of the church in this. The church has a need for people to give whether it's the mission work that Paul's on or the benevolence work that's necessary to sustain the church. And so I think we're looking at principles here in giving to the church. For example, this is a little bit like our mission giving to the Wolbrants in Croatia and to the Hansons in Midcoast, Maine. You know, we heard about their mission. We heard that there were other churches getting on board and giving to this exciting mission that they're going on. And we said, yeah, we want to sign up too. We're excited about seeing churches revitalized on the mid-coast. We're excited about seeing churches planted in Croatia. We're excited about those gospel witnesses, and, and we want to get on board too. Because this, is, this isn't just a benevolence ministry or benevolence offering. It's, it's the mission of the church. Turn back to, to uh, Galatians. Turn forward to Galatians chapter uh, 2. This is not just a little something on the side, a love offering. This is, this is Paul's mission in chapter 2, verse 9. When the, when the apostles in Jerusalem send Paul out to preach the gospel uh, to uh, the Gentiles, he said, and when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seem to be the pillars, the, those are the recognized uh, apostles in the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, Uh, and to Barnabas and and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they're going to preach to the Jews. Paul's going to preach to the Gentiles. He's on mission. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's, it's It's wrapped up in Paul's gospel mission. 
It's wrapped up in Paul's missionary budget. We, we need to go do this and plant churches. And, and by the way, we're going to take up an offering for those who are back in need back home in Jerusalem, the mother church, which by the way, while I'm on this, means love, doesn't it? Think about the words that we read from Paul in Ephesus. Who, what kind of believers are in Jerusalem? Jewish believers. What kind of believers are in Achaia and Macedonia? Predominantly Gentile believers. It's a uniting offering. It's proving the love of God for all people and that not only does God make us alive in Christ, but he gathers us together in Christ. There's something theologically significant taking place with this offering on the mission field, and it's wonderful. So the Macedonians became an example of generosity and giving by, one, the grace of God. God built this generosity in their hearts, and two, by the example of the Corinthians themselves, so that they are now an example to the Corinthians, not just in desire, but in actual giving. That's how they became excited to give to the church. But the grace of God brought about more than the Macedonians giving their money. Their giving, Paul says, exceeded his expectations. Because God's grace kind of does that. By Paul's gospel preaching, they gave themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ first. That's paramount. That's the foundation of everything generous. First, they gave themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of themselves, which includes their money. Christ is the cornerstone of generosity. Then, second, by the will of God, Paul says they gave themselves to us. What does that mean? They gave themselves to us, to Paul and his co-workers laboring there in Macedonia. Well, just as they gave themselves to God, they gave themselves to support God's mission and God's missionaries. Paul is Christ's apostle to the Gentiles by the will of God, and they, the people of God, submit to the apostles' teaching by the will of God and support Paul's companions who are doing the gospel work of God. They loved God and they loved the people of God, which is the church. And so they fell right in line with God's mission. And Paul wants to see this same grace up in Macedonia, this grace of God active in the Corinthians as well. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. He doesn't say, I'm going I'm to write a dollar amount on a piece of paper, I'm going to slide it across the table to you, and I need you to match that. He doesn't say that. I want to see you respond to the grace of God the same way the Macedonians did. That's what I want to see. And I'll see that through your generosity and giving. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he should get started so he could complete among you this act of grace. When they were in Corinth, Paul delegated the work of gathering an offering for the saints in Jerusalem to Titus. And so Titus went around telling them. Titus started the work, and now Paul is sending Titus back to Corinth to finish the work. It's time for the Corinthians to respond to God's grace in their own generous giving. Pick up in verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others 
that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Like us, the Corinthian church is far from perfect. And if you've read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you know that. So, they're trying. They're trying. They responded well to Paul's first letter. And, and, and his second letter, which we don't have, which is a severe letter, calling them to repentance for their sins, and they've responded well. And so Paul's writing what we know as 2 Corinthians, which is his third letter to them. They're, they're really trying. They've repented. They're pursuing faith. So Paul appeals to their genuine desire for spiritual excellence. Generosity is a virtue, just like all other Christian virtues, that we're called to. Giving to the church is a good work, just like all of the other good works that we're called to walk in. So Paul says, just as you grow in faith and and gain knowledge and increase in earnestness and love, excel in this act of grace, which is generous giving. The flip side of that is that you can appear, apparently, to have faith. You can appear to have knowledge of Christ, And you can appear to have an earnestness of godly living without having love at all, apparently. Without love that's expressed in generosity. Apparently you can do that. You know, you can fool some of the people some of the time. All the people some of the time. Some of the people all the time. All those mixed in. You can do that. And Paul wants to see God's grace in operation in their generous giving. He won't see that by commanding them to give a certain amount of money. He can see that in comparison to the eager sacrifice of the Macedonians by the eagerness of their sacrifice. Not a comparison of dollar amounts. The Corinthians could give easily way more than the Macedonians without even being generous. You know, their pocket change might equal up to the the rich generosity of those in Thessalonica and beyond. What Paul wants to see among the Corinthians is a comparable generosity of heart. An act of giving that would prove that it's God's transforming grace that brought it about. That's what he wants to see. And what does God's grace and his generous giving look like? Well, look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the very Son of God, set aside the glorious riches of heaven for the loneliness of earth. By his incarnation, that's all of it, his birth, his life, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, by all of that, by his poverty, we have been made rich in him, haven't we? Was Jesus rich? 
What was his? Everything. Everything. The stars, the moon, the sun, the cosmos, all of the earth and everything in it. The riches of Christ are infinite. That is his wealth. He became poor. Why? Paul says three words. For your sake. Brothers and sisters, for your sake. My mind runs to the, to the rich young ruler that comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. Tell me what I need to do. And Jesus says, go give away your money. Not because you're not allowed to have money, but because it was, it was his money that he treasured in his heart. And so Jesus put his finger right on the heart of the matter with this young man and said, give away your money. Come follow me. And the rich young man walked away sad. Because Jesus was right. He loved his money more than he loved Jesus. But some have said that there, were, there was another rich young ruler in that picture, which was Jesus himself, who responded rightly to the grace of God, who gave away all that he had, even himself, so that sinners might follow him to salvation. Jesus knows what it means to give everything. And his everything actually was something. Your and my everything ain't that much. In fact, if we think about our everything rightly, our everything that we love, our worldliness is really a millstone around our neck. It's not an asset, it's a liability. Because it leads us away from Christ and into the world and not towards Christ. And so Jesus says, give it up. Give your little everything to have my big everything. You see, there is no greater love, no greater grace, no greater gift, no greater generosity than Christ himself. Do you know this grace? Friend, do you know his saving grace? Admit your spiritual poverty. Repent of your sins and turn to this Christ, this generous Christ. The only appropriate response to him is to give all of yourself to him. Because he has given all of himself for you. If you would have him. Jesus has given all so that you might have all. How could you hang on to your little how could you hang on to your little when it's not even an asset? It's actually a liability. Turn to Christ and have Christ. Have generosity itself in your heart. The generosity of one who would take your sins upon himself and pay your debt, which you cannot pay, in your place. That you would not experience the just wrath of God upon you, but that you might to the smiling love of God upon your heart. You see, generosity is grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul goes there. Not just a better example of generosity, but the source of generosity. 
We're to respond to the lavished grace of Christ. We know him. We don't just know about him, we know him. Paul says, it was about a year ago when they had heard of the need of the saints in Jerusalem and the Corinthians had two firsts. They had two firsts in their congregation. One, they were the first to begin the act of giving. They got started a little bit. And then secondly, they were the first to actually desire to give. Paul sets those two things. He separates them just a little bit so you can see them. Here's the problem with the church in Corinth now. It's not that they lack the resources to give, but they they lack the heart to give. Their zeal has waned. All they have right now is good intentions, which are worth just about nothing. They don't have a resource problem, they have a love problem. That's what Paul says they have. Listen to these words that Paul wrote to this same church in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember remember the love chapter? Remember how Paul describes love? Well, here's how he describes generosity within that love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body even to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So it is possible for us to look like we're excelling in faith, speech, knowledge, and still not have love. That's a haunting thought. That should be a haunting thought. Where love is lacking, generosity will be absent. And where generosity is absent, brothers and sisters, what is it that you suppose is lacking? What does God want us to do? Remember the generosity of Christ. Remember Christ. And so Paul tells them what would be the best course of action for them to take. That's, you know, that's what we look to the Bible for. I really need advice from the Bible. And we would love it if it was all worded that way. Well, here it's worded that way. Gosh, I just don't know about giving and generosity and things like that. Well, Paul has a best course of action for you whose hearts need to be revived in generosity. And this is what he says. Give willingly. Give willingly. You see, he's addressing their hearts. Give willingly. So that your readiness now will match your former readiness. You've got something to live up to. It's that readiness that you had at first. Thus, proving that your willingness has always been genuine. Follow through. Let the grace of God revive generosity in your hearts. And give generously. It's what he says. And then Paul throws in a couple of practical principles of giving in the church. First, you're to give willingly. You and I are to give willingly. And if you give willingly, God accepts your gift in relation to your means. That is, generosity is based on what you have and not on what you don't have. This is the idea of the widow's might in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to turn back to Mark chapter 12. You can as well if you'd like, and I'm going to read that. It's just a few verses, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, here's my pronouncement. This widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
It's a stunning statement. It's a perplexing statement. How can that be? They've put in large sums. Jesus has admitted that. She put in two little, two little copper slivers. And so he says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Do you see how Jesus honors generosity? This, this would be our principle of proportional giving. You would to give from what you have, not from what you don't have or what from somebody else has. You are to purpose in your heart with God what you're to give, and it's proportional. Just so, you're, just so you're on the right track in your giving. And second, this is pretty interesting, pretty practical, no one is in gaining an advantage here. That's the assurance we want when we give, don't we? No one's gaining an advantage here. Well, we have that assurance. The church is not unnecessarily enriching the receiving church. Right now, the Jerusalem church is struggling. And the Gentile churches are able to give. It could be one day, Paul says, that the Gentile churches are struggling. And that the Jerusalem church or another church would be able to give. That's what he says. We, we can see this played out in real time. It, it could be that you know, the church in Afghanistan is struggling. And the church in Ukraine is struggling. And they are. But there are churches in, oh, places like America and other places that can generously give for their relief. It may not always be that way. We pray to God that things would reverse for the church in Afghanistan and Ukraine. And maybe one day they'll be in a position to help others. But nobody's being unduly enriched here. And then Paul pulls this idea from Exodus 16 to illustrate the principle of sharing from God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. Regardless of how much each person gathered, all had enough to meet their needs, but no more. That equality happened miraculously. But here, the church is responsible to manage benevolence so that it's wise benevolence. And so each of us is to give generously, even sacrificially, from what we have. In comparison to one another, the amount of our giving is proportional to what God has given us. That's the, that's the wellspring foundation. Well, my giving's in proportion to what it is that God has supplied for me. And the church is to be wise in its spending, even in its benevolence, so that people are helped and not merely enabled. These kinds of lessons, Paul, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, make it more than theoretical, make it more than theological, though it is those things, but very direct and practical, isn't it? These are like general accounting practices rules that Paul's throwing in here. <laughs> hey, here's what you need to think about when you're doing benevolence. Make sure you're helping people, not enabling their bad behavior. When we do benevolence at the church, we, we ask people to come sit down. Bring your budget. Bring your monthly budget. Because we don't want to just band-aid over things. We want to help. If you've gotten yourself in a bit of a financial pickle, there's probably a reason for it. And we want to help. Part of that might be to help you budget better. We want to genuinely help people. And so Paul throws these things in here. It's very direct. It's very practical. And look at what he says next in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. But thanks be to God, 
who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but he himself, very earnest he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among you, among all the churches, for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous giving, this gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. And we, and with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever before because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for the benefit, for your benefit. And as for the other brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul's sending a team of three men ahead to gather the offering at Corinth before Paul and the rest of the representatives from the Macedonian churches arrive. So they're going down first. They get a head start on Paul's return. Now the first person I already mentioned is Titus. Titus is one of Paul's close ministers. Titus loves the Corinthians just as much as Paul and wants to see them succeed in this generous giving. The other two men were chosen by the churches in Macedonia. We're not told their names, but they're both well-known and committed to the gospel. So we have a team that represents everybody's interests with integrity. Huh, why is that in here? Well, the purpose of the offering, since it's an act of giving to the church, is to honor the Lord himself by proving our love and generosity towards the brethren. That's, that's what it's there for. He says, so we are taking pains to do what's right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Everyone wants to know that the offering is going to be handled well. No embezzlement, no misspending, you know, no, no, no lavish accommodations on the trip to Jerusalem, right? We want the money given for Jerusalem to get to Jerusalem. And if this is a good work, if this is a good work by the grace of God and for the glory of God, we don't want it tainted with accusations of mispropriety. We're taking some steps. We're letting the churches pick some men to walk along with us. We've got accountability in place. Paul says, use generally accepted accounting principles. Handle this well. And it's, why, it's why we as a church have a budget. It's why we as a church have financial reports and the appropriate separation between those who spend and those who record and receipts, all for the purpose of financial accountability. And this is Paul's idea, that the church must be trustworthy in order to successfully carry out the mission in a way that will honor Christ. We appreciate that. We appreciate that. This is just not theory. Chapters 8 and 9 are rooted in the real activity of a local church. The church is to handle financial matters as all matters with integrity. It's very practical. By the way, the part of the practicality and integrity is in our giving. Our giving. Every member of Christ Fellowship Church has covenanted to support the church family financially. Yes, we, we have this membership covenant. We will love one another, we will pray for one another, and we will support the church financially. When we vote in our annual meeting, which we just did to affirm the annual budget, we affirm also our responsibility to meet that budget. 
Yes, this is what we're going for this year. These are the ministries we have, the expenses we're projecting, and we're going to support that. We're all in this together. We are the church on mission to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants to tell the Corinthians one more important thing, beginning of verse 9. I'm sorry, chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has already since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. I mean, this is Paul's caution to the Corinthians should they lack the generosity that they had first possessed. I don't have to tell you about the offering because you already know about the offering. That's what the word superfluous means. Here's what you need to know. You boasted about your readiness to give. And when I got to Macedonia, I boasted about your readiness to give. I believed you. Your zeal to give stirred up their zeal to give, which was a good thing. And so they gave. But you've not yet given. Fact. And so I'm coming to collect your offering. And some of the Macedonian brothers are coming with me to celebrate our collective giving. And if you have not given, we'll both be embarrassed. And I'll be forced to tell you to take up the offering that you'd been boasted about there on the spot. So instead, I'm sending the three-man team to urge you to take up the offering ahead of time so that your early giving will display your willing hearts. And we'll have a celebration over everyone's willing gifts and the grace of God. So take this time to let the grace of God operate your heart and get it right. To respond to the grace of Jesus by following through on your own promise to give to the saints. Wow, Paul's telling them, hey, you said you'd give. It's time to give. Or you'll be a disappointment to yourself and the other churches that you told you'd give. And a disappointment, listen, I don't think this is too far of a stretch, to the Lord. You had a zeal to give and you've, you've allowed it, you've allowed it to die down. And Paul says, Look, I've given you all these examples of the grace of God. The grace of God in the hearts of the Macedonians, which means it can happen to you too. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the generosity that he's given to us, which should absolutely fuel your fire to be generous people. So, so fan the flames. Fan the flames. Finish the work and give to the saints just as you said you would. That's what Paul's telling them. And there's a principle here that we need to we need to abide by, and it is that there's a principle here that we need to hear sermons from time to time about our giving to the church. There, I said it out loud. Are you kidding me? Of course, because we can be just like the Macedonians sometimes, and we can be just like the Corinthians sometimes. 
We can have an excitement and a zeal and say, yes, we're so excited about the mission in Croatia, and we're going to give this money to it. But, you know, a few months go by, and we haven't thought about it. And, you know, spring comes, and, you know, a boat looks nice, and a new set of golf clubs looks nice, and there's nothing evil in golf clubs of themselves or boats of themselves. And yet, I had purposed something in my heart, and now I'm kind of just, just saying, hey, I don't have the grace of God to do that, but you do. You just have to fan the flames and be revived in your hearts and generosity. Talking about money is not off the table in the church. It's not taboo in the church. Generosity and giving is part of our normal discipleship. Giving is on the same par as your service to the church. It's on the same par as your gathering to worship on Sundays. It's on the same par as your commitment to pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's on the same table of discipleship as your loving one another as Christ has loved us. Giving is the same. God didn't save everything except your wallet, like your wallet's an Achilles heel. You know, and you got dipped in salvation, but oh gosh, forgot, covered up your wallet, and you can do whatever you want with that. Well, the reality is you can do whatever you want with that. God has saved all of you and left it up to you to steward the money he's given to you. And so we look to scripture and we find some helps as to how we ought to steward that. And that's what Paul's doing here. Hey, Corinthian church, let me help you in this church stewardship aspect. Let's get on track. Let's get on track. You are not giving to Christ Fellowship Church because the pastor is exacting money from you. Because he's not. You're giving money to Christ Fellowship Church because you have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ into being a generous person. And so generous people give. This little reminder will help to revive your generous giving. When people ask how to best arrange their finances, I give them this formula. You should give first save second, and live on the rest. Scott, how should I, how should I arrange my finances? Well, let me, let me offer you this suggestion. Give first, save second, and live on the rest. Why give first? The pattern throughout all of Scripture is to give the very first fruits of what God has given to you back to Him. Give first. It's an easy argument. Give first. Then, there's going to be a time, you know it's coming. There's going to be a time when you're not able to work. Hopefully it's not till your retirement. You need to save for that. You need to set some things aside responsibly to save for times ahead. And then what's left you can happily live on. This makes sense. And yet, you may not be in a position to do that today. So what are you going to do? I'd suggest that you make some adjustments in moving towards giving first, saving second, and living on what's left. If you've been living off the rest and more, you need to work to pay off that debt. Get started. The sooner you get started, the sooner you'll pay off that debt. You know what? I know what that feels like. There'll be times in your life when you get old and retired that you need money to live off what you've saved, and if you haven't been saving, then it's time to get started. You're probably playing a little bit of catch-up to get ahead with that. I know what that's like too. You have to make some adjustments. Real, actual adjustments. 
And you know, all of us grow to learn to give in the local church. A heart of generosity, like all of the other fruits of the Spirit in our lives, is something that grows and increases. You may have started out your, your life in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ not knowing anything about giving, and then you come to learn more about giving, and then you, you start to make changes and come in line with obedient giving and all the other aspects of obedience in life. And you have to make those adjustments to become a generous giver and increase your giving. It is a blessing to be able to increase your giving to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what that feels like too. It's wonderful. It's not financially binding to give to the church. <laughs> it's soul freeing. It's soul freeing. If you'll give everything to the church except your money, you just received a diagnosis about your heart. If you're happy to give your money to the cause of Christ, proportionally, as you purposed in your heart with God, you'll know the joy of being generous as God has been generous to you. That's soul freeing. It's non-worldly living. Listen to what Paul writes beginning in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Did you hear that, timid giver? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. Four alls and one every. That's pretty generous. This is not some prosperity gospel promise as some would take it. It's just a gospel promise. God will generously supply your generosity. It's what he'll do. So don't be a reluctant giver. Be a cheerful giver. You and I need to understand the depth of God's grace and generosity in our lives, and we don't. He has given beyond all expectation and beyond our current understanding. If we were to sit down one day and just try to list out the ways that God's been generous to us, just the ones we know are a drop in the bucket. God's grace abounds. And God's grace abounds not only in our giving, but in all our living and for all good works. That's what Paul says. Every good work. He has given us the very righteousness of his Son which endures forever. Paul's quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. That's what he's given. We can afford to be generous in all things with the generosity of heart given us by the grace of God. You don't have to worry about being generous. You can be generous lavishly. In fact, we're to be growing in generosity, the very generosity of Christ himself who gave himself for us. That is not a forbidden card to play. 
I remember. I remember sitting in the congregation and saying, oh, you can't play the Jesus card on my giving. Come on. That's not fair. I think that's just over the top. I think that's guilting. Well, if I'm guilting, Paul's guilting. And if Paul's guilting, the word of God's guilting. It's not guilting, brothers and sisters, not at all. It's reality. Jesus has given all to you so that you can give all. That's it. It's his economy. It's his economy. It's not the U.S. economy. It's his economy. God's saving grace is also his sustaining grace, which we see here accomplish three things right in these verses. First, God's sustaining grace makes us a reflection of his gospel. He is giving us generosity of heart. He is why we can be cheerful givers. Listen to the words that Paul wrote earlier to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's just back a couple verses. Chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you think people would describe you as being controlled by the love of Christ? Does the love of Christ control your credit card? It's Jesus who said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let the gospel love of Christ control you. Second, God's sustaining grace empowers us for every good work. Generosity in all areas of life. When we think of God's empowerment, we often think of big things. Well, we want God to empower us. We want God to give us power to do this massive thing that everybody's going to notice and it's going to be awesome. And that'd be nice if God chooses to do that. But honestly, brothers and sisters, it's the little, nearly unnoticeable things that reveal generosity of heart. It's the little things in the daily ways that we give consistently that add up over time. Think about your decision to babysit for a family in the church. That's generous. Or to call a brother and sister that you know who's lonely. That's generous. I'm going to give cheerfully. That's generous. What about our decisions as a congregation, as a church? We not be, may be able to give whopping loads of cash to other ministries, but we have, we're excited to follow through on giving to the gospel mission in Croatia according to our means. And we're excited to give to church revitalization in mid-coastal Maine according to our means. And we're excited to give to the Abba Pregnancy Center on Forest Avenue in Portland according to our means. And to meet the unexpected needs of people in our congregation through benevolence. We're, we're excited to do those things. And through our giving, God sustains our generosity as we seek to sow even more bountifully. And here's the third way. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, 
which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes out of your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God's sustaining grace always results in God's glory. That's what God's doing in the church, always. God is a God of increase, Paul says. In particular, he is harvesting an increase of righteousness in his people. And in view here is generosity as a fruit of that righteousness. And when the generous gift of the Macedonians and the Corinthians is received by the saints in Jerusalem, they will respond with thanksgiving to God, which is appropriate always, isn't it? Yes! In the same way, our generosity yields thanksgiving to God. We may not hear it, You may never meet a Croatian who says, I came to saving faith through the Wolbrandt's ministry, and I want to thank you for supporting that ministry decades before. You may never hear it, but you can bet that yield thanksgiving to God. So we give trusting God will get his resources to their intended destinations in his kingdom. It's all of God's grace and our submission to the gospel. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. That's how we look at this. And so may we know the grace of Jesus so well that we would ruin ourselves in Christian generosity for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your inexpressible gift of Christ to us. Thank you for being a God of endless generosity to us. Oh, that we would be willing to listen and to be transformed and to be made generous as our holy God is generous. We pray that you would do this work in us, that our giving would reflect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.